Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, and I'm hosting the channel today. And today we'll be talking with Charles King, who's the author of Gods of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century. It's a fresh retelling of the story of the Boaz Circle from Franz Boaz's birth to Ruth Benedict's book, Chrysanthemum and the Sword. And it's really one of the first books that can cover all of the Boaz circle during the interwar period into World War II for a popular audience, not just a scholarly audience that does history of anthropology, which is what makes this book so interesting. So Charles, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. So I, one of the first things I wanted to ask you is, how did you end up writing a book about the Boazians? When I go to your faculty page at Georgetown, it looks like you focused on post-Soviet states and the Caucasus. So how did, how did you decide to settle on that topic? Yeah, so this is, um, I mean, in some ways, a real departure. It's obviously a, a departure in terms of discipline. You know, I'm in a political science department in the School of International Affairs, and, and I've, uh, but I tend to write books that have the word history somewhere in the title. And geographically, up to this point, I've really made my career in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, as you, as you mentioned. Um, but within that sphere, uh, I've worked a long time on ethnicity and nationalism. And uh, several years ago, I started teaching a class um, that I call Ethnicity, Race, and Nation, in which we take all of those concepts and sort of shove them together and ask whether we're really talking about varieties of the same thing when we study each of those things. Ethnic politics, um, you know, origins of the nation and nationalism as an ideology, and of course, race globally and ra- uh, race and politics and history in the United States. And um, what I what I really wanted to do was to sort of take what I knew from places where nationalism seemed to be so in the fore. I mean, the, in the 1990s, the break of the Soviet Union, the breakup of, of uh, former Yugoslavia and so on, where I had seen on the ground how um, recasting national identities works, um, how people come to blows over the most arcane issues of language and spelling and historical representation, and then turn the light back on a society that I knew, or at least I thought I knew, rather better, which was the, the United States, and its particular biologized dividing line, of course, race. And um, it also helped that I've long um, admired anthropologists. I always assign readings from anthropologists um, in, in my courses. I also, 11 years ago, happened to marry an anthropologist, which turned out to be really important in all of this. And... Um, and so that was sort of the origin of the book. And I wanted to tell the story of uh, what I thought of as a transformation in the way that Americans started to perceive the world over the course of the 20th century, a transformation that's not finished by any stretch of the imagination, but, but um, a big set of ideas that came to the fore. So you worked on ethnicity and nationalism sort of professionally then, and it looks like this book is sort of meant for a broader audience, not just a specialist audience who works on those topics. So when you think about the Boazians, what is sort of the the takeaways that are in this book that you hope people will get out of it that are sort of um, not meant just for academics who are working on these very particular issues of how orthography and ethnicity interact, but, but for uh, people who might be reading this book in an undergraduate class or reading the book on the beach or just interested in nonfiction in general? Yeah, well, of course... You know, there there's a, a wonderful um, historiography of anthropology. I mean, major figures who have written um, on uh, the development of anthropological thought, not just uh, in the United States, but uh, but um, around the world. Um, 
and you know, I hope I have something new to say uh, to those folks in, in in a specialist field. You know, not least because so much of the book really is drawn from original archival research. You know, working in the Boas papers in Philadelphia, um, working on the working the Mead papers in uh, the Library of Congress and elsewhere. And um, so I hope there's something new for for the specialists, but for um, readers who aren't you know, interested in those particular historiographical or theoretical debates. Um, the book is some combination of, um, bio, of, of biography and history of ideas, meaning that, you know, it's really important to me to understand where these big ideas that, that were transformative in the way that people thought about what race is and how race works or um, the dividing lines of gender in any society or the fixedness of, of sexuality, that, that we tell the story of those ideas that are shaping our lives today um, through the lives of people who thought them or who worked with them or who struggled with them. Um, and, and I think, you know, you can read this book um, either sort of skipping over the biographical bits and going just to sort of history of ideas sections and, and descriptions of, um, of the major works of these, of these thinkers. Um, or you can uh, read it for the biography. These people led fascinating, amazing, um, complicated lives. Um, or you can do what I hope people will do, which is to really see those two stories as braided together. Yeah, I guess we have um, such a, an assumption among so many people in the country today, perhaps not everybody, um, that, that, you know, um, people can be raised with different gender ideas and different cultures. People who have different colored skin can do lots of different things, not just one thing. But we maybe have taken it for granted a bit that we all know that. And it's interesting to see the process by which we got there originally and what some of the arguments were to help uh, overcome the older point of view, which sort of assumed that there was a natural ranking and a natural order and that there basically was no culture concept. So we get a sense maybe in the book that you, you see what it took to get there to where we are now. Well, I I have to say when I first started this book back in 2014 or 2015, um, I, I realized that early versions of it, you know, the, the bits that I would write for a, for a kind of proposal for the book, I go back to those and, and it has this shockingly triumphalist air to it, you know, that, that the book is going to be about the way in which we all became so enlightened. And this is how we came to this uh, way of seeing the world. Um, I realized, of course, that I was in an incredible academic, um, you know, liberal urban bubble thinking, thinking that way on the one hand. And then of course, 2016 happens, the election of Donald Trump, the, the return of um, a kind of chauvinistic American nationalism to the, to the fore, not that it had really gone away, but uh, these ideas being expressed in ways that, um, that, you know, a few years ago would have seemed really quite, quite shocking. And so the book is truer um, than it might otherwise have been, because it really is about the struggle over these ideas, not the um, their ultimate triumph. Um, of course, you know the way most university classes on in anthropology and human geography and history and other subjects, um, sociology would teach about race, ethnicity, gender, um, you name it. It's a world away, of course, from where things were a century ago. And of course, in those domains, some of the ideas championed by the, the Boaz Circle have won out, um, which I think would have surprised virtually every member of the circle who, when they lived their lives as these incredible struggles to um, just to get people not to believe in their own mythologies and not to believe too much that their way of seeing the world was the only way of, of seeing the world. But, you know, I know even with my, with my undergraduates, um, you know, they come in, um, if they come from progressive schools, uh, being able to repeat the idea that race is a social construct, they can say that. But then if you sort of ask them, well, what does that mean? Can you explain to me what that idea means? 
um, they have real trouble with it. I think they even have trouble with the idea of, of race itself. They know that racism is abhorrent. And by racism, I think they mean a kind of hierarchical ranking of racial categories from you know, more intelligent, less intelligent, more, uh, civil, more, more civilizational potential, less civilizational potential, and so on. They, they know that that's bad and you shouldn't do it. When you ask them, well, what is race? They still have, in my experience, a really biologized conception of what race is. And I think they've picked that up from um, a biology teacher somewhere in school. I mean, the kinds of things I actually did a piece for for time um, uh, not long ago where, you know, I kind of I, I just went through some of the human geography textbooks and state education standards and some of these areas. And, and, and when you read these things, it's really quite shocking. You know, kids are often being taught that race is still, race is the fundamental biological division in the world, and that races are divided into ethnicities and so on and so on. So that, you know, kids still come out, I think, with this weirdly hierarchical understanding of human difference and a biologized understanding of human difference, even if they know that the ideology of ranking, according to that difference, is morally wrong. Yeah, you know, this is to me one of the most interesting points about your book. On the book is basically the story to put it in a very telegraphed way of the triumph of modernism over a Victorian theory of progress. Hmm. And and um you know, modernism to do a shortcut on a very complex cultural phenomenon questioned notions of objectivity, questioned notions of truthfulness, canons of taste and representation. And the, the Boazians were really doing that. They were really saying things like, you know, maybe there is no such thing as progress, or maybe progress is just a personal preference. Maybe there are no transcendental grounding of values. And that's very challenging to people. And it seems like, uh, Today, both the left and the right feel much more comfortable in a sort of more progressive or Victorian mode where each side sees themselves as doing war against, you know, the, the barbarian in, in some sense. And so I guess one of the things you had to capture in this book is the way in which the Boaz Circle had genuine insights. Um, and we should not be flabby, you know, or take for granted that these insights are just going to be dogma. But then on the other hand, you know, you do also challenge them and and show their shortcomings, their treatment of some of their indigenous collaborators and yeah. research associates, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that's exactly right. And, and um, you know, what I try to do in the book is um, treat these individuals as thinkers situated in place and time. So um, it's, I mean, I guess you can read the book as kind of a celebration of their ideas and a celebration of cultural anthropology as a way of, um, as a way of seeing the world, but I don't want to let these thinkers off the hook, right? I mean, that, that they themselves, as you say, had their own shortcomings and, and blind spots. And, um, and they were also working within a disciplinary or scholarly tradition, um, that had, you know, arisen from colonialism, arisen from imperialism. They didn't shake all of that off. They didn't shake off the um, differences of uh, custom or power um, that, you know, attended their relationship with indigenous peoples or local informants or just people they happened to meet and, and rely on. And, you know, at, 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 um, in one of the chapters where I deal with this sort of explicitly, I say, you know, they, the work that they were doing ranged from the merely inconvenient, um, you know, and like taking up somebody's time and energy so that they can tell you a story, which the, you, you can then record somewhere, which you then use to build a career, uh, the merely convenient all the way to the abhorrent, you know, and the, they were working in institutions that used uh, sacred objects of, that had been stolen. They used, they worked in, um, uh, in institutions, museums that contained the flayed bodies and bones of people who never expected to be there and certainly never gave their permission um, to be there. So I do, I do try to try to situate what these folks were doing within their own particular time and context while also then talking about 
you know, the longer term impact of these ideas uh, on the way that we might see the world today. Yes, that's true. And you're able to be critical of them without without just saying these people are the colonizer and it's time to write them off. These are the these are the bad people from the past. And now we we have a more socially just system. Um, and you do that partially through nuance, which I appreciated. But I think you also do it by putting them next to people like Lothrop Stoddard and um, Madison yes, Grant, Grant. Yeah. who don't don't make the Boassians look like colonizers, if I could put it that way. No, no. I mean, they they uh, that's exactly right. But you know, I also want to part of part of the idea is then to situate ourselves. Um, in the same kind of historical process. I mean, why should we believe that we have arrived? Why should we believe that we have it all right? In fact, that's that's a core Boazian message, you know, that that we are all situated on some kind of um, stony, crooked, circular, spiral, <laughs> up-down path of historical development. We're not on a train track leading to a terminus, but we do all look back, I think, on... Um, on previous periods or previous um, eras of thought or thinkers and, you know, imagine or ask ourselves, how could they have seen the world that way? How could they have possibly thought that way? Well, how backward they must have been. And Boaz wanted us to put ourselves in the present moment in exactly that position as well. But you know, at the same time, he did he 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 was a modernist, as you say. He was not a postmodernist. I mean, he believed he believed deeply in the scientific method. He wanted the word science to apply to anthropology and to apply what um, to apply to the to the work that that he did. And and you know, by that, I think he simply meant the iterative falsification of hypotheses. Um, that you know you you make a provisional conclusion about the world based on some preliminary observation, and then that is always subject to correction based on subsequent um, collection of of data. Um, what he objected to um, most, I think, about people like Madison Grant and Stoddard and others. I mean, he certainly objected to their. Their, their racism, their xenophobia, their anti-immigrant stance, their chauvinism. But he also believed that this was just ludicrous science. I mean, it was ludicrous scholarship that they were promoting, quite apart from the moral or ethical dimensions of, uh, of, their, of their messages. And he, he was forever reminding people that, um, you know, you have to, we only go, we, we only make conclusions about things in the world based on our sense perception, but you all must always distrust it. And you know, of course, he had picked this as part of the tradition of the German Enlightenment in which he was, uh, which he was schooled. But it was a powerful mes- message that he he tried to impart, I think, to all of his students as well. Mm. And his central f- focus was: if the facts are incorrect, then then you're going to have to rewrite the sort of political or moral consequences, not this is politically or morally problematic. And so therefore we need to inquire into the facts. He was really focused on the empirical side of it first. That's right. And I mean, and that was, you know, his, the sort of first generation of his students, they were very, um, they were very dissatisfied with that. I think they wanted him to conclude more. And, you know, when I think even some anthropologists today look back on Boaz and they see him as a kind of um, collector, you know, rather than a, um, rather than a, a broad kind of thinker, but he um, he did believe that if you you know with limited time and limited money, where you're trying to figure out what do you spend your time doing, um, he would rather you just you know collected stuff, put stuff together, do the empirical work. There's you've you've got the rest of eternity to do your theorizing, but. What you have before you is like cultures, as he would have put it at the time, we might say societies or, or ways of life or other, you know, we use other terms for it today, but these things sort of s- slipping away, like entire views of the world or um, cosmologies or uh, musical um, 
uh, you know, ways of making music and singing and every, all of this is just disappearing. Um, and so why wouldn't you want to sort of grab onto it and collect it? Because you never know where that piece of data that you've just been collecting is going to fit into some theorizing they might do down the, um, down the road. So, um, yeah, I mean, he wanted, he wanted science to drive our, our understanding of the world. He wanted to drive our sense of morality, you know, um, because I think he also realized that this idea of, of, um, of tolerance, um, was not going to get human society to the place that he wanted to, to, to get it. He, in, in Mind and Primitive Man, he has this um, phrase called the, that he calls the pitying smile, you know, that, that um, folks from civilized societies go to primitive societies, using the language of the time. And the most progressive view you could have is, oh, those poor people, you know, there's so much that we can do to help them out of their predicament. But it didn't even occur to many progressives of the era that these folks weren't in a predicament at all. They were living a, a purposive, coherent, um, brilliant kind of life that you would want to try to understand rather than, you know, lift them, lift them out of. Um, mm-hmm. And then if you and, and then, you know, just a final point on that, if you if you then you know, if you believed in the deep biological reality of race, or you believed in the um, the natural hierarchy of human societies, but your morality, say, derived from uh, Christianity or an, another religious tradition, would tell you you should behave as if those things aren't real, then you're in a real predicament, right? And that's where you know, going back to the point about. Um, students and biologized race or how they perceive things today. I, I even see that, see some of my students, my, particularly my white students, you know, struggling with, with this somehow that, gosh, you know, they've been taught that, that there are biological realities to, to race. Um, you know, you see this with medical school students and others that they've sort of taught that there is some biological deep difference, um, uh, separating different racial categories yet it's wrong to treat people as if there are and so they've they've worked themselves into this kind of intellectual um they painted themselves into this intellectual corner whereas boaz was saying no you begin with the facts of the case you unpack these categories destroy the timeless reality of those categories and then a set of moral commitments flows out of that Yes, I think one of the problems with a lot of that kind of work is that there needs to be more social science in the biological sciences. Because, oh, here, here. Yeah, the biological sciences peoples come, they're often very, very highly trained and very specialized, and they don't have a broad background. And so they start deploying sort of their own local categories about uh, human biological variation to biology without thinking where those categories come from or anything like that. So and it's it's another way in which some of those older 19th century or like, you know, sort of Madison Grant sort of theories of race are still around. Oh my gosh, that, that that's exactly right. I mean, and you know, there there are the most nefarious versions of this. There's the Charles Murray Bell curve version of it, the whole, you know, um, new biologism when it comes to issues of of human difference. And then there are the 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 kind of folk theorists you know that you get in in often in medical school education where people just particularly again i think um white american students um uh, but not exclusively will just absorb these ideas from the surrounding society and because then you know they're in the business of science and truth or or so they believe um apply those folk theories to a set of observations. And then, you know, you take a set of folk theories or folk categories and quantify them so that the output of your study is, is a a set of, a set of numbers. And we live in a moment and in a society in which if something is quantified, it must therefore be more true than a thing that is not quantified. But of course, what you get at the end is, is nonsense. It's gibberish 
because um, because the categories themselves are given by the society, not by you know they're not their ex ex ante. Um, but the uh, you know this also goes back to a thing that I think that I hope people will take from the book, or at least that I hope scholars in the social sciences will, particularly in the non-quantitative social sciences, will take from the book. And that is, do not leave these issues to people in white lab coats, you know? Mm. Um, Do not leave it to them, because they are unschooled in some very, very basic concepts that are skewing then the quantitative work that they might do, but yet, yet that work gets called rigorous because the output of it is you know, a set of numbers or a, or a model or a set of equations. Um, but it's often not rigorous at all because the, the foundation, the conceptual category foundation is, is deeply flawed. You know, it, it, it's always this balance between on the one hand, wanting to have confidence in your results and your findings. But on the other hand, there's always this Boazian moment, which is to be critical of your self-conscious and yeah. your self-confidence and to say, wait a second, do I really get it? Isn't, isn't there another point of view out there that's different from mine? That's always that mixture of, of faith in the method and gathering new evidence but also being very sort of uh, cynical and um, and um, careful about your own claims to authority and knowledge—that's the classic Boazian move. That, that you know, that's exactly right. And the 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 wonderful example of this is Boaz's work on what he called sound blindness um, in the I think the late eighteen eighties, where you know he wrote a, a famous paper um, in which he he took took on the idea that. Uh, primitive languages and of course i'm using that word primitive in 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 its appropriate historical context not in an evaluative way but that primitive languages were well known for not having fixed pronunciations um it was only as your language became much more sophisticated and civilized and written down um, you know, were you able to fix pronunciations in particular ways and then transmit those through schooling, proper pronunciation onto the future generations, you know, a, a, a rather popular idea apparently in the 1880s. And he, so he took on this idea and he started going back to his own field notes, particularly from the Northwest coast. And he realized that, um, that you know, he had been taking down transcription of languages um, in really inconsistent ways. So uh, you know, a sound that he might represent as a K in one place, he would represent as a CH in another case. And years would go by, and then of course you forget what convention you had used for noting all of these things down. And and he said, you know, so much of what we think. Uh, what we think about language use in non-written oral tradition languages could well be, in fact, just is in his case, a, a product of the researcher's own field techniques. And But yeah, we built this entire theory about how entire languages behave based on some really bad, unrigorous, um, and self-referential data collection. So he was, you know, he was always doing this. He was sort of, his, you know, his rule was follow the data, go where the data lead, and then question your data once you, once you get there. And that's not a bad way of doing science. Mm, absolutely. And that's something that he, he passed on to different students of his in different ways. And a lot of your book revolves around Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict, and I'd, I'd like to talk about them. Yep. But I also just want to very quickly talk, you You include Zora Hurston and Ella Deloria in this as well. And those are people who are don't come from sort of traditional scientific backgrounds. They're not, you know, white academics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes they're not included in sort of these Boazian genealogies, although Hurston increasingly is. Yeah. Can you tell me about how you put them in there and how their work articulates with Boaz's? Well, I thought it, I thought it was very important to to in, you know to include them. And at some point, you know, with a book like this, you're trying to the book is not meant to be an exhaustive 
genealogy of all of the you know individuals who were involved with Boaz or contributed to the to the to the, to this work that would that would be an encyclopedia um, rather than a, a narrative history. Um, but th- there were a couple of reasons I wanted to focus on <clears throat> these individuals in particular. With you know Deloria, I thought she kind of stood in as a character for the many, many indigenous um, research partners, uh, friends, informants who worked with all of these uh, folks. And, and I, I'm sorry, could you yeah. just tell us very quickly who she was again for people? Who yeah. So Ella, El, yeah, Ella Cara Deloria was a, um, was a Dakota um, uh, woman who, uh, studied at Teachers College um, in New York and first came to know Boaz in the late uh, 1920s when he, in a roundabout way, discovered she was there and, and, and wanted actually some help with, with uh, some Dakota texts. Um, she would go on then to teach um, at um, Haskell uh, University in Lawrence, Kansas, and uh, where Boaz would eventually meet up with her again. And then they worked together in the 1930s on a whole variety of Plains Indian um, uh, folklore projects, but the the most famous thing they did together was a was a, a small um, but very important book called Dakota Grammar, which was a descriptive grammar of the of the language. Um, she was also one of the rather few people that Boaz ever uh, shared a byline with, and she was very proud of that. Um, of, of that fact. And then, you know, continued to teach in, um, in schools in the Western Plains and, uh, but, but, uh, but died without really having the recognition that, that I think her early uh, work, um, deserves. Um, the same family line produced, you know, Vine Deloria, um, the, the, um, who's very famous, of course, the Philip Deloria, who's, a um, a professor of, uh, Native American history at Harvard now. So very illustrious family. And um, and then of course Hurston, who was um, a an undergraduate, eventually an undergraduate at uh, at Barnard College. She had studied Howard University in in Washington uh, for a while. <clears throat> fell into the kind of Boaz orbit, as uh, many people did, undergraduates did in those days, as Margaret Mead did a few years before Hurston. Um, and then eventually Hurston began um, a doctorate with uh, Boaz, uh, never finished it, but uh, alongside publishing her novels, you know, which would become these great works of the Harlem Renaissance and after, including Their Eyes Were Watching God, um, she did ethnographic work under Boaz's directorship, directly or indirectly, um, along the Gulf Coast and in Haiti and Jamaica, and then produced these really remarkable works of of ethnography that I think more and more people are now reading, not just as folkloric collections of stories, um, but as um, but as very serious participant observation, um, um, you know, ethnographic work that um, that probably reads better today than it might have read to many anthropologists at the time. You know, Hurston, uh, Boaz, you know, we, we've kind of portrayed him as basically like anthropology's punishing superego. You know, you need to be as detailed as possible. You mm. should never be too self-confident. That's a good that way to put it. like the opposite of Hurston to me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely right. And, you know, and the two of them, um, I mean, at a kind of personal level, it was very funny to kind of go back and read letters between uh, Boaz and Hurston when she was in the field. Um, I mean, both because I think of the emails that go back and forth between, you know, myself and my graduate students who might be doing field work somewhere and reminds me of, of, uh, of those. It's all, you know, this, all of this stuff about sort of highfalutin theoretical or methodological issues in addition to people getting sick or missing a plane or, you know, all of these sort of um, very regular, often angst ridden field work questions that graduate students have for their um, advisor. So to see that in the 1920s and 30s was a, was a, was a real, real treat. But, um, you know, they, he was always pushing her to be more rigorous. And Hurston, I think, 
was never going to be the kind of scholar who would, you know, create, um, create grand schemas of, of things. She was never going to be a systematic, you know, collector in, in exactly the way that Boaz or, or colleagues like Mead and, and uh, Bennett might have, might have wanted her to be. But what she had was, I think, an ability more than any of them to inhabit the idea of trying your best to live in another way, to live in another place, you know, um, to, uh, I've sometimes put it as sort of jumping off the intellectual high dive. I mean, she really got it. And th th there's a, there's a section of the book where I talk about her work in Haiti and, you know, the rather sensational fact that Zora Neale Hurston was the first person we know of to photograph a zombie. So the, uh, a photo of um, a woman named Felicia Felix Mentor, um, whom Hurston encountered in um, a mental institution in Port-au-Prince. Um, she first published the photograph in Life magazine and later became uh, part of the, her ethnographic collection called uh, Tell My Horse about um, Haiti and Jamaica. Hurston has a short but to me absolutely incisive and brilliant explanation of who this woman was and why Haiti might have needed this social category for the undead. I mean, she treats it in this absolutely unsensationalized way. First of all, she names this woman, you know, which we would think of as today, very good fieldwork practice, not a zombie, but a, a person who actually had a name and had a history, which she goes into. And, and she sort of explains why the idea of being actually physically alive, but socially dead was very useful in that society. And if Hurston had the ability to understand that in Haiti, you can, you can kind of understand why, right? I mean, she was a, she was an African-American woman from Jim Crow, Florida, um, who made her way eventually uh, to, to, to Washington, made her way eventually to, to New York, uh, was separated from other members of the Boaz Circle by the canyon you know, of race. She had all of these experiences in Harlem that a, that a Mead or a, a Benedict never would have uh, had. She understood what it was like to be invisible you know, to be you, to be coherent, to have a strong sense of your own reality, your own identity, but yet be kind of socially invisible uh, to to other people, depending on what category they saw themselves as, as, as being. And so she produced, you know, this, this work that is literary and, um, and evocative, um, daring, um, uh, at the same time, I think, as being an actual work of social science. I guess, you know, it's interesting you say that she was able to jump off of the, um, what is it? The, the intellectual the high, high dive. Yeah. The intellectual high dive. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I guess a lot of what Mead and um, Benedict and, and Boaz and others were doing was trying to overcome cultural difference. But Hurston and Deloria were writing about people who were related to them or very similar to them or who, who really shared something deeply with them. So I, maybe does that make them a little bit different than the classic, uh, you know, um, white, if you consider Jewish people white back then, mm -hmm. um, anthropologists trying to overcome cultural difference? I mean, don't we remember them as great, like indigenous or endogenous anthropologists? And and one, one other thing to pick you on, back onto that, don't we also remember them sort of as experimenters in genre, writing in ways yeah. that, that Boaz never would, Hurston. And although I think we haven't mentioned in this interview, Deloria is also well known for a, an ethnographic novel called Water Lily. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. That was published after, after her death. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that the term, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not completely comfortable with the idea of, you know, putting, putting these individuals in a category called indigenous scholar or indigenous anthropologist. You know, they, it is certainly true that um, to, to some extent, they were writing about communities that they had a special in um, with. Um, and that's particularly true when, you know, Deloria is writing about 
a language that she spoke as um, uh, as a as a young woman, or especially true when um, you know Hurston's writing about her hometown, um, Edenville, Florida. Um, but at the same time, they were going into very very different social settings um, in places that, from the outside, might have appeared that they would have been you know very familiar with. You know, Hurston went through multiple. Um, uh, hoodoo or voodoo, you know, terms, both of which were terms that she uh, used, initiation rites. Um, she had no experience of that kind of thing growing up as a, you know, uh, daughter of a, a local notable and Baptist minister in, in Edenville. Um, she would go to, you know, holiness churches in the South, again, very different from a kind of Baptist church that she might have gone to. She went to Haiti and Jamaica. It, it, there's no particular reason she had any in there at all. Um, in fact, she found both of those places to be just so fundamentally different from anything that she had experienced um, in in the United States. So, you know, I think we want to what you know what I want to do is sort of treat these folks not as indigenous scholars, but to treat them really like a like a Mead or a Benedict. Um, I do think, though, that. That the meat in particular um, came with, you know, a fair a fair amount of her own blinders. She was br- brilliant. I mean, absolutely brilliant. I think wonderful as a writer um, as as well. Although somehow, if just as an aside, she picked up. I don't know if it was sort of native to her or she picked it up from Boaz. But I, I noticed in in reading so much of their work that Mead and Boaz have a very similar style in one regard, and it's extremely frustrating. It's they will circle around to a point beautifully, like create this architecture to get you up to the thing that is going to be their central point and then never make it <laughs> like, like never make yeah. like really never have the zinger sentence that is really going to drive everything, drive everything home. Um, but you know, you were, you were, you were very right. I think about the, um, about being daring in style. Um, you know, all of these folks wrote poetry. They, they, um, they were all interested in in literary expression in one form or another. Um, Boaz, I don't know if he wrote. I haven't come across Boaz Boaz's own poetry, but um, but he certainly you know loved to play the piano, and loved music. Um, the irony is the sort of sad irony in a way is you know had it not been for the canyon of of race. Um, me Hurston would have been living the life that Mead wanted, or in other words, you know, Mead Mead. I think if she could have reinvented herself and just been anything, she would have been a novelist or a famous poet. Um, but of course, it's Hurston who actually becomes that. And uh, Mead says it somewhere. I think in a letter to to uh, Gregory Bateson that you know novelists understand the world more than scientists do, and there's a little bit of envy clear bit of envy in the way that she says that. Yeah, I guess some people would say that we're really giving respect to Hurston and Deloria by saying, let's treat them as anthropologists, not indigenous anthropologists. There are other, I'm sure there's other positions out there who would say like, wait a second, is that a respectful thing to say? Maybe we like it the other way, but it's definitely, it's fascinating to think of like Mead uh, as like almost Hurston. Right. Yes, and exactly. Not is almost Mead. No, no, ex- that, that's exactly right. Because um, I don't know that Mead was ever. I don't have any evidence that Mead was ever particularly envious of Hurston, and they weren't close. I mean, they, they, uh, you know, they did correspond. They, um, they, they knew each other. Uh, Mead commented on Hurston's work, including on some field notes um, that Hurston had had sent her. But, um, you know, you, you do think it, it, had it not been for that, that racial division that treated Hurston as a, as an African-American writer, you know, treating, uh, creating an entire category called, uh, you know, at the time Negro literature, um, into which she was placed, um, 
you know, Meade would have been, I think, very, very envious of uh, what she'd achieved. You know, you talked um, earlier on about how you had done some original research and um, you hope to uh, add something not just to the popular record, but to the, the, the scholarly record in the history of anthropology. One of the things that particularly stood out to me was one of the um, chapters which opened with the Boazians saying what they thought about Bronislaw Malinowski. Oh, and yes. their incredibly negative opinions of him, which I, I think have been shared by many people. I mean, I, those quotes were new to me, but the, but the feeling about them was, was not. Um, so I do want to maybe spend the last couple of minutes of the interview talking about just like how much drama there was in the Boaz circle and, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, Meade and Hurston and these people sort of sharing their lives together. I mean, it's, it just sounds like a soap opera. Well, it sounds like graduate school, you know, which is, <laughs> which is kind of what that's, you know, we are talking about PhD students here. I mean, we're talking about the, the incredible drama of people, you know, who are in their twenties, um, uh, in, in, you know, in an environment in which you have female graduate students and these sort of these great sort of patriarchs, um, lording it over them. And you can't, you know, you, you have to understand the sexual politics of, uh, of, of the time, which determined the professional and life course of so many of the women um, in this circle. Um, you know, the general opinion of Malinowski was that, uh, of course, he was this brilliant scholar who was just, um, who every time he would sort of sweep into the room was looking for, you know, both a job and an affair and, and was very open about, about that. You know, the other person who does not come off looking very good in this book is Edward Sapir. I noticed um, that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there are Sapir fans out there. I haven't gotten any hate mail yet from Sapir fans. I mean, he was, of course he was brilliant. Of course he was this critical figure in the history of anthropology and linguistics and um, so on. Uh, but you know, the downside in a way of this project is I read all of, you know, the love letters between Sapir and, and Mead, and then the complaining letters that Sapir wrote to Benedict Mead, um, you know, kept all this stuff and all of it is in the Mead archives in the library of Congress. Now the property of, of the United States. And, uh, one of the occupational hazards of doing a kind of collective biography like this, especially where people are romantically involved with each other is that you have to read their, their love letters. And that makes you, uh, that does change, you know, the way you see people and perhaps gives you a more accurate uh, picture of who they really are. It does make you very embarrassed for yourself because you kind of think, Oh my God, you know, the, the tortured kind of letters that I might have written over the course of my, my own life. Um, but Sapir, you know, once so he and you know he and Meade had um, begun an affair not long before she left for Samoa in, in the summer of 1925, and Sapir wanted her not to go. I mean, he wanted her to to stay behind. Uh, he was relatively recently widowed. He was considerably older uh, than uh, than she was, and he believed that she should you know she had finished her doctorate. You know, this was field work, this was postdoc field work that she was doing in Samoa. Um, why wouldn't she just settle down with him um, in, you know, in Chicago? He was having, had a chair in Chicago, just settle down with him and help raise his kids. And he did everything in his power to prevent her from leaving. I mean, short of throwing himself over the, you know, the, the railway um, the railway tracks, you know, leading, uh, leading to the West coast. Um, he, uh, he, he engaged Boaz and tried to get him to keep her from going. He engaged Benedict and, uh, and suggested, you know, that, that, uh, Meade was clearly not well psychologically and she might need to be even institutionalized, um, when she got back. And then once Meade clearly broke it, broke off the relationship, with um with him he really never forgave her and i think um just detested her like really detested her in a very personal way and did virtually everything in his power to undermine her career from that point on i mean there's there was this even in this one very really testy letter 
that he wrote to Benedict. They were friends. Um, you know, they had a kind of bilateral friendship in addition to this triangle quadrangle involving Mead and, and, and others. And um, after coming of age in Samoa came out in 1928, he wrote to Benedict, especially to tell her how much he detested it and that it represented everything he hated most about American society. And then the final little cherry on the Sunday was say, was explaining to Benedict that he had borrowed the book, but couldn't bring himself to buy it. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. There's, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the biography of Leslie White, but I think oh, yes. he's who wrote that. There's, he he read the white um, Sapir correspondence, and you know White was like Sapir's greatest student. We don't think of yeah. him that way, but he actually was. And there's you know White constantly felt controlled by Parsons because she Elsie Clues Parsons, a sort yeah. of a wealthy heiress who could fund field work, and he had to sort of do whatever she said to get her to write the check. And there's some stuff in there where they're like complaining about her mood, and they're just all like, "Well, she's probably on her period." Ha ha ha! Like. Really? Oh, oh, oh no! All of this. Okay. No, all of this. Uh, this is just so so common, of course. And this, you know, uh, it, it's it, this is part of the academy today. I mean, it, it, there's more awareness, of course, perhaps there, than there was at the time, and power is shifting. But but um, you know, the I hope the book also reveals what it was like for for these women to try to be making careers. Um, in this kind of, in this kind of context, you know, and, um, and, and it was just, it, it was crushing and it, um, and it of course then determined the arc of, um, arc of their lives. Mm, yes. You know, people often think of, um, Boaz as being someone who supported women and, and he did, but uh, one of the reasons he had that second wave of students was just because that was who he was allowed to teach and he yeah. needed bodies, you know, um, I think a lot of, a lot of the commitment to diversity sort of came from the political economy of their outsider status in the academy, as well as his sort of general commitment to women. Yeah, you know, as it 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 um, once he sort of fell afoul of uh, the uh, powers uh, at Columbia at the time, particularly the president, occasionally the board of directors, for some outrageous thing he would say about global politics or a suggestion that, you know, the United States might not be the greatest country in the in the history of the world. And, and of course, Boaz was very outspoken uh, politically, especially around the, the First World War. Um, he, you know, he was kind of forced across Broadway to Barnard, at least for the undergraduate component of his um, of his lectures. And there he really did cultivate this uh, group of young women at, you know, Columbia's College for Women, um, who fell into this orbit and and became that kind of second generation of, uh, of Boazians, you know, Mead and Hurston came in that way. Benedict came in sort of through Parsons and what would become the new school for social research. But then she became his teaching assistant at Barnard and, and the TA for Margaret Mead and, and you know, this group kind of collected a whole set of acolytes um, from from that community, but it it reshaped the discipline. It um, it uh, provided a set of chances and opportunities that uh, would not otherwise, I think, have um, have been available. And as he wrote to his son, you know, already around 1920 or so, um, there's a letter to um, to um, Ernst Boas, in which in which he says something like, you know, all of my uh, a change has come over the seminar room in recent years. All of my best students are women, and that was at the height of you know that that second wave. Yeah, there's a small article which is in the History of Anthropology annual or newsletter, I guess, which is Boas writing to his mother complaining about teaching women, and then mm. her writing back and telling him, "What are you talking about? There's nothing wrong with women," and that was. The, I think Stocking sort of portrays that, George Stocking, the famous historian of anthropologist, as the point in which Boaz sort of realized that the Enlightenment ideals of 1848 sort of made him treat women better. And then that was sort of where he, you know, <laughs> right. he got the That's the shift. Yeah, that's the shift. I, I do want to end by asking uh, one question or having a little conversation, maybe being a little bit more critical about the book. Yeah. You know, you, you cover Margaret Mead uh, and her writings um, – including some of her Samoan and her New Guinea fieldwork or Bali fieldwork. And it seems to me like 
uh, you, you've talked about the importance of being both critical of these people and taking them seriously and the importance of being able to see the, the flaws, but also see the benefit of them and that that's a good mindset. But you seem very positive about some work that people today would really not have very many good things to say about, you know, like I think, you know, sex and temperament and some of Mead's field work in, in the Sepik region of Papua New Guinea. I mean, people, you know, people don't think of that book very highly today, if I, if I can put it politely, but you seem, you seem very positive about it. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about how you handled some of those critiques of Mead's work. There's one long footwork about Samo and free uh, footnote about Samoa and Freeman in there, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I there's, think- and, and I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Benedict also, there's a lot wrong with patterns of culture. So you you so there's no, there's no question that we wouldn't, um, that one wouldn't do anthropology today in the way in which they, they did it. And, um, what the book is trying to do is to situate these thinkers in a particular kind of moment, you know, to show what they were arguing against and to show the consensus about a whole set of issues from, you know, adolescence, uh, the biological nature of race, the fixedness um, of uh, gender, um, and the normalcy of heterosexuality, among many other things. And so I think what I'm trying to do in the book is not argue that we should go back to these texts and think of them as having gotten something scientifically right for all time, but that what they managed to do was to shift a conversation in, in fundamentally, fundamentally kind of important directions that have then shaped a set of debates today. So, you know, I would, I would read, the book is not a work of anthropology, and it doesn't claim to be that, but it does want to be a kind of work of intellectual history and situate a set of, um, a set of ideas about the world in the time and the place in which they were being, uh, being developed. Um, but you're absolutely right that, you know, you wouldn't, you, you would want to be critical of all of this. You'd want to be critical of their fieldwork practices. You know, you'd want to be critical of their, of their literary style, um, of their own understanding of race, you know, where, you know, Boaz, Boaz himself would never have come around to the particular understanding of, of race that we have today. He was just would have been an, incapable of that. Um, yet at the same time, he was arguing forcefully against the dominant hierarchical, deeply biologized view of race that obtained in um, in his day. You know, I, I I did go back on the Derek Freeman uh, set of issues with with Samoa. You know, I did I did go back and forth on how to treat this because I thought for a while, uh, you know, I'll have um, I'll have a big appendix on. Um, you know, were they right or something, something like that? And then I thought, well, but I don't want to. I don't want to presentize all of those debates. I don't want to sort of claim that everything they wrote um, was, ex- you know, sort of settled any of these the questions. But rather that they were pushing back against a dominant orthodoxy in, in the sciences and um, in the way museums were organized. You know, to to really situate them in their in their historical context. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess readers will have to take a look at the book and read it and um, see what they think about that. And maybe take a look at some of the footnotes and some of the readings that you cover. Go back to some of these classics like uh, uh, on alternating sounds and um, see what they think for themselves. Uh, I've taken up a fair amount of your time, so I do want to let you go. But before I do, can you tell me a little bit about what some of your future projects are going to be or how the book is being received, what what you're doing now that you've managed to finish this thing? Well, I'm doing a fair amount of, you know, sort of talking and and and, and writing about the, the book because, you know, part of its goal is to help um, a set of folks who might not have encountered uh, Franz Boas. In fact, most people have not encountered Franz Boas at all. I mean, if you take an anthropology class, of course you would, but um, these would be, you know, utterly new names or Ruth Benedict, you know, Margaret Mead might've been the one that, you know, people could recognize as a social scientist. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to talk about 
some of their ideas and the the ways in which they've helped to shape a set of debates that we that we have today. Um, I will move on to some other project um, soon enough, I imagine. I've got a few things that I'm that are kind of in in the works, but um, nothing worth talking about at the moment. Okay, well, good. Good luck uh, with um, getting the word out about the Boazians, and thanks so much for writing the book. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, I think, yes. I think we'll uh, wrap up now. So thanks so much for being on the show and thanks for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. You bet. Thank you, Alex. That was great.